This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Overcomers, God's Vision for You to Thrive in an Age of Anxiety and Outrage, written and narrated by pastor and best-selling author Matt Chandler, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Welcome to the Transforming Discipleship Podcast brought to you by smallgroups.com. It's a podcast designed for church leaders who are actively seeking to make disciples for Jesus Christ in the world. I'm your host. My name is Oliver Hersey, and today we're joined by our regular contributor, Bill Search, and we're exploring today, Bill, the role discipleship plays in the Christian faith. Bill, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Oliver. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. You know, this week, uh, my daughter just started toddler school. She's like two and a half, three years old. She's going like one day a week, but it's crazy. And Bill, you have kids? I do. Enjoy enjoy the crazy because my two oldest kids, my go- my girls are up in Michigan in college. So okay. I, I miss the toddler days now, now that we're far, far yeah. removed from them. So <laughs> soak it in, my man. It goes by quick. I hear this all the time. Each season of parenting, I think, is exhausting in a different way, but right now it's like physically exhausting. Oh, so uh-huh. is that, is, I, used to, I used to long for the days when they were out of diapers because I was like, I can't wait to get that money back. And now that I'm paying private college tuition, yeah, yeah it's a different game. I, I wish I could go back to the era of diapers. It was way cheaper. Yeah, <laughs> it's it, everything's relative and in perspective. I love that. Well, Bill, thanks for being on again today. We appreciate your time, and um, we want to get right to it. So we want to lay a little bit of groundwork for why discipleship is critical. Um, why is this a critical? thing in the Christian faith. And so, you know, maybe we could just start, Bill, in your own experience uh, as a pastor, as a father, as a discipler of many, why is discipleship vital for a Christ follower? What would you say? Well, if you just think about what a person is, if they claim the name of Christ, but they don't walk as Jesus walked, the problems that develop not only in that person's life, but for the reputation of Christ and for his church the undiscipled, quote-unquote, believer leaves a wake potentially of destruction, spiritual destruction, relationship destruction. And all too often in our culture today, we have people who who on social media have somewhere in there, I'm a Christian, and then you look through the posts and you think, that doesn't seem very Christian at all. And I, I don't mean that in a judgmental sense. I'm talking about just the very basics of of how to treat uh, other people, the way that you even view life, the values you have in life. That is, uh, if you are not discipled, that is, if you don't walk as Jesus walked, if you don't actually live your life in such a way that being a follower of Christ is manifest, is evident, then what happens is, is you really inoculate the world against the faith. And I think that that's even part of the issue we're facing in in our culture in the United States right now, which is we have a a historic nominal form of Christianity, but it was just that. It was nominal. It wasn't invested in the person. And so people were turned off to yeah. fake Christianity. I don't think people are really turned off to true, genuine, deep Christianity. They might not like some of the conclusions, but I think in general they respect it. I think the pieces of it that are a problem is that undiscipled life. 
Yeah. You know, as you were talking, you mentioned a couple times that phrase, you know, walking like Jesus walked. And I think about that passage in 1 John 2, 6. I know you know it. It's anyone who claims to be in him must walk as Jesus walked. It's this idea of anybody who claims to be a Christian ideally is learning and trying to walk like he walked, to live like he lived. And, and the discipleship component is this learning curve of how do you and I and, and those around us learn how to walk and treat people the way he treated them. I think a lot of times, and maybe I'd be curious to hear what you would think about this, Bill. Do you think that sometimes some of us in the Christian faith look at our Christianity and it's almost like this thing that sits on a shelf? Uh, it's 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 like a tag or a label on us. Yeah, I I think so. I think that we've taken that passage out of First John that if we really say that we are followers of Christ, we should walk as He walked, and instead we sort of translate it to we talk as He talked. So mm. we might repeat things Jesus said. We may quote him regularly. We may surround ourselves with a lot of religion. But when you actually look at how Jesus walked, the way that he engaged with other people, the way that he set a tone, that that's not there. And and so what happens then is it's actually not just frustrating for everybody around that person, but it's frustrating for that person because then they're wondering, why is my marriage not the way it ought to be? Why are my kids not the way they ought to be? Why is my boss not seeing the value I bring? And really, at the core of the person, you have what is really an unconverted heart. You have a converted mouth, maybe, but not the heart. And so there is this lack of wholeness to it. And that's really why I, I often maintain, I wish, we, I wish we would understand disciple so much deeper and richer. It's not some big mystical spiritual term. It literally is just following in the pattern and in the teaching of Jesus and letting that absorb into our person. Like I said, I think that when the world sees genuine faith, they're excited about it. You know, that you you see it in the say Mother Teresa. I remember watching her memorial service online and seeing in a a Hindu nation and a Muslim nation of India celebrate that woman as a hero of her country. And she was an immigrant to that country who loved people like Christ loved them. And she was celebrated for her faith by people who didn't share her faith. And there's something in that that should be a lesson for us. Yeah, because, and you think you said it earlier, it's it's this heart-shaping experience that I think Jesus invites us into. And it's an experience that reforms every component of who we are, the way we think, the way we treat others and the way we feel and experience the world around us and the way we engage it. And we see that in Mother Teresa. And and that's a great example, Bill. I think it it gives you goosebumps thinking about the profound effect that she had on her people. And uh, it it is compelling to see someone whose life is so committed um, to following the Jesus way of life. And, And yeah, so why discipleship? I think that's probably... It's vital for the Christ follower, but I think it's vital for the world. I think the world is restored and reconciled when people commit to the discipleship process. I mean, would you agree with that? Is that fair enough to say? Yeah, you know, I think so. When you look back at the the massive growth in the history of the church in the first three centuries, there was no major evangelistic campaigns. There was no technology. There was no printing press. Nobody was handing out scrolls of the New Testament on street corners. Yeah. 
And yet, and yet, it went from the persecuted religion to the Roman emperor saying, this is the state religion. And people argue whether that was a good thing, but that's not relevant for this conversation. What's most fascinating is something that was an offshoot religion became the center of the Roman Empire. That's remarkable. And how did that happen? Because people looked at the transformed lives of those who were following Christ and said, whatever it is those people are into, they seem nuts to me, but I want it. I want I want whatever it is they got. And that turned the Roman Empire literally upside down. And it still turns our world upside down when people genuinely live out Christ in their life, when they live that transformed way. It is compelling and it's fascinating. And people who don't share the beliefs start getting interested in the beliefs. And it totally makes sense because I grew up in the church. I knew a lot of people that looked like they had some intestinal disorder at all times. And and they were to me they were a complete turnoff to the idea of being a Christ follower. The person who is constantly dour and sour, critical. That's not what Christ calls us to. There's certainly a place for seriousness and sobriety, and there's a place for criticism. Of course, there is in the body of Christ. But when that's what people are known for, when they become better known for what they're against than what they are for, that becomes a real problem. And you look at the message of Christ, it's a message of hope, a hope for today, and it's a hope for tomorrow. And so if you're not experiencing hope now and you're not experiencing hope for tomorrow, then ask yourself, what is the message you've bought into? Because it's probably not the gospel. Yeah, that's good. And, and you know, you're thinking about the gospels that we read and that we encounter and this idea of hope and this idea of um, why discipleship is so important. We see Jesus modeling it for us and inviting people into it. And I think about how Jesus discipled people uh, and how he kind of raised up and birthed this movement um, it, he often did it in group settings. And, and of course, there's instances where he had one-on-one moments of teaching and discipleship in the New Testament. But more often than not, and I, I'm sure you'd agree with this, I mean, throughout the whole Bible, but specifically in the Gospels, discipleship seems to be happening in small group settings. And Bill, I mean, would you, would you, would you agree with that? Is that accurate? Yeah, you know, you go back to one of the famous passages in the Old Testament that small group people love to invoke, which is uh, this uh, famous interaction between Moses and his father-in-law, where where uh, his father-in-law says, Moses, the, having all roads lead to you is not a good thing for you or the people. You need to break this up. And he, and he makes a suggestion of a system that results in groups basically of 10 sorting out their differences and figuring out where to go from here. Mm-hmm. And it becomes a place, uh, evidently, of arbitration of problems, but it also becomes a place of community and connection, evidently. And so this is their wilderness system. And that's in the Old Testament. We see it in the life of King David, that he, when he was in his wilderness experience, he had mighty people around him, some mighty men who who were there to help protect him physically. And he talks about, you know, if you read through some of the Psalms, the importance of connection and relationship. And uh, he's written poetry about that. And then you fast forward into the New Testament, and you see in the Gospels, it's not by accident that Jesus' first project in his ministry launch was the recruitment of a team of people around him. And so he picked 12 people to be with him and learn from him in an intense kind of way. And if you study the Gospels, you see he had a smaller group even within that, a tighter group of, of three guys. So there was four of them that were 
journeying together within that larger band of 12. And then you see it again in Paul's writings and in the the mystery writer of Hebrews says, you know, don't forsake getting together as some are in the habit of doing. In other words, it takes effort and it's easy to bail out. Yeah. So don't bail out, but instead spur one another on. Uh, and all the more as you see that day approaching. And so the, it's just a theme that comes in over and over the importance of a, of a community of people around you who know you. So I want to think for a minute, like nuts and bolts of a community. And even in, we can use Jesus's communities that he created around himself, maybe as a, as a template to look at and study for a minute. But if you think about why is it that discipleship can thrive in these environments? What is it about a community that creates space for discipleship to thrive in perhaps ways that it can't thrive in just the one-on-one mentor-mentee relationship? And obviously those serve a place, but what is it about the group dynamics uh, and the nuts and bolts of that group that lends to successful and thriving discipleship? Well, you know, I personally, like when I reflect back on even mentors in my life, I realize I've had multiple mentors. I haven't had one person in my life as a mentor who could see me from start to finish. One, that'd be one heck of a project, and I pity the person for having to put up with me that long. But also, we grow as people, and so there needs to be a flow of people. But if you have a community of people around you, let's say you're in a group for several years with the same people, you may need more from one or two of those people in the group and they from you. And then a season or two later, it may be somebody else in that group. It's not uncommon for friendship circles to move in intensity. Mm. Uh, you just think about a family. Sometimes you grow up, if you grow up in a certain family, and you guys real close to this cousin. And then as I got older, I actually became close with that cousin who I never had much relationship with before. And I think a lot of people can relate to that. And it's because we morph and change as people. And as we do so, new challenges come in and new needs show up and new opportunities arise. And so having some diversity around us that can help basically speak to those particular challenges or opportunities at any given moment become important for our overall growth and development. And so, and not to mention the fact that people come and go, people move, people get sick, people drop out of community. So to have more than one person in your life is an insurance policy, if you will, or insulates you from the risk of losing that one person. One of my most important mentors, uh, like a spiritual dad to me, he passed away. Well, it's good that the Lord's provided other people in my life to come alongside me as well, because, well, the obvious. And so I think that this is just part of how God wired us is in this community. And it's actually quite interesting, too, to get to know new and varied people. I love what you're saying, and I hear you really painting a picture of how small groups serve such a primary role for us as we're growing in each season of life and going through the different things. And there's almost a natural progression of small groups. And as we are rubbing shoulders with each other and going through the mistakes of life, the growing pains of life, uh, we need each other as well as the teacher in the whole process. So, Bill, I, I appreciate your wisdom on this and your time today. Thank you for joining us. 
The thoughts you have about discipleship in small groups is remarkable. We appreciate it tremendously. We want to thank the ministry leaders for tuning into this episode of Transforming Discipleship Podcast. It's a podcast brought to you by smallgroups.com. And if you're looking for books, Bible studies, or training resources to build your small groups ministry, we would love it if you visited smallgroups.com today. And while you're there, be sure to check out Bill's book, The Essential Guide for Small Group Leaders. We hope you have a great day. Until next time, take care. This episode was brought to you in part by The Truce Podcast. The new season examines the connection between some evangelicals and the Republican Party with the help of world-class historians. Subscribe to Truce in your podcast app or listen at trucepodcast.com.